We're going to announce the winner of the Monster Calling Kit and the Bugler Swag Giveaway and discuss hunting polar bears in the Arctic and dealing with anti-hunters. Here we go. There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. All right, welcome back to episode number 24 of the Western Huntsman Podcast, brought to you by Phelps Game Calls. Use promo code HUNTSMAN10 for 10% off. And Scree Extreme Mountain Gear. Use promo code the Western Huntsman for 15% off and free shipping. Guys, coming at you from the Broken Time Studio here in Hayden, Idaho. Glad you're here. Glad you're tuning in. And uh, pretty excited about this episode, as I always am. You know it. And we've got some uh, really cool stuff happening today on this episode. Um, I've got a great guest lined up for you that I'll tell you a little bit about here in just a minute. We're going to announce the winner from uh, last week's episodes for the Monster Bugle Calling Kit, or I'm sorry, the Monster Calling Kit from Phelps Game Calls. And uh, the Dirk Durham, the Bugler, provided a pretty cool little swag package uh, that we're going to give away as a second place prize. So I'm going to announce those winners uh, coming up here in just a minute. So, gosh, it's crazy how things went. I So I left town like Thursday uh, to go up uh, on the mountain and, and go do some bear hunting, which I mainly just ended up fishing most of the time and, uh, and hanging with the kids. It was actually warm enough. We swam in the river and everything. It was super nice to get away, uh, you know, out of phone service. And then I, I, so I come back, we come back and it's like the world is on fire, right? Like we've had, we've been dealing with coronavirus and then, this whole situation with George Floyd um, and and all these riots going on, uh, it was just like it was crazy. It was like just totally different when we got back into town and and opened up our phones and saw the news and checked our social media and it's like shit's just going crazy everywhere. Um, I think uh, I, I want to say it was Joe Rogan or somebody said this morning like 2020 has been like 70 years all rolled into six months and. There's a lot of truth to that, man. It has been just kind of a, a wild, wicked year, and and uh, things are like just kind of crazy, man. Um, hopefully, they're just getting back to going back to normal. Um, this has uh, been something else for sure. This George Floyd thing. Um, you know, w- one thing people have a this tendency to take such extreme sides to to everything, and whether it's politics or something like this or uh, you know, whatever the case is, even even in hunting, you know, the, everybody kind of goes, they, they tend to migrate towards these extreme sides. And I think that it's important that we understand that it doesn't have to be extreme all the time. Like, for, like my my take on this George Floyd thing, not this is like, you know, unsolicited opinions I'm, th- I'm throwing out there. But, you know, that that cop that did that to George Floyd, that guy deserves to go to prison. That guy freaking deserves to go to prison. Take your damn knee off his neck. The guy dies, 
he's handcuffed and 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 the cop keeps his knee on on him and just is is like choking him or something. I don't know what the hell even happened there. I watched the video and it's like the guy just all of a sudden passes out and dies. Like do you feel tough, dude? You feel tough doing that? That totally unjustified, and that guy deserves to go to prison. I don't even know that cop's name, and I don't, I don't want to give him the time of day to, because that's the kind of guy that gives our police and and these people that serve our communities and our our states and our countries. They they that's the kind of stuff that gives them all a bad name, and and it's undeservedly because I think for the most part, most policemen and most cops are world class people. They're they're great. People, I, I keep wanting to say dudes, but the guys and gals, they're great people. They're salt of the earth kind of people. You know, they're my kind of people. And and I think that just it doesn't matter what group you have. You always have like a bad apple, right? And I don't know if this was like a racist thing or what. It, it's it's kind of hard to call it racist when he had all these other, you know, there, there was a lot of diversity on that, on that uh, four-man police force there. So... I, I just I don't know where it came from. I think it's more or less he's one of those dudes that gets a little bit of power and wants to show everybody his authority and and it and they, it let, it like goes to their head and they think they could just freaking do whatever they want and this poor guy dies from it. It's bullshit. Now that said, that does not justify breaking into businesses and looting our communities, burning down police stations breaking glass on a Target store and ripping off the whole store. That does nothing to honor George Floyd's death, and it does nothing to but but bring dishonor and disgrace to the, the cause that you're trying to, you know, rectify here, whatever the hell it is these looters are trying to do. And it's it's those are those are extreme people. You know, they're just like extreme people. And I tell you what, so we live uh, where I live in, in the northern panhandle of Idaho. We were kind of next door to Spokane, Washington. On Sunday night, they got hit hard by these Antifa or whatever you call them protesters. That I don't, I don't even think they were from the Spokane area. I think they were from like Portland or something. Showed up and started burning stuff in the street or breaking into businesses, looting, uh, breaking glass, and just creating a, you know, just like the rest of the country seeing. Well, they decided to try that last night. In Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, my hometown. I'm actually just north of Coeur d'Alene a little bit. But what they didn't anticipate is Idaho is not a place that allows that to happen. So people started showing up, heavily armed, AR-15s, and all sorts of different kind of weapons. And the rumors were flowing, you know, that Antifa and, and these rioters were coming to this location, and then maybe they're moving to that location, and 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 it didn't matter. The armed citizens were there. They were protecting our community. They were protecting our businesses. And guess what? There was nothing but peaceful protesting going on last night in North Idaho. Not one business got looted. Not one shot got fired. And I'm proud of my community for doing what a citizen in the United States should be doing. And, and I think it's just pretty fantastic. And it's also a great argument for, for uh, owning guns and, and the Second Amendment argument. You just, you just gave us, you know, decades of, of argument for our side. So take that, Antifa. Go loot somewhere else because you're not coming to Idaho to do it. And you shouldn't be doing it anywhere. That's not, that is not the way to honor George Floyd. 
that if if he if he could come back to life and answer the question, he would not come back and say, well, uh, hopefully people go out and start breaking into people's businesses that they've worked with blood, sweat, and tears their entire life to build and and create a livelihood for themselves in, in our country, and, and that will honor my death. I hope that's what happens. I highly doubt that's the answer you would get. Knock it off. And if you don't, and you want to come to Idaho and try it, that's a risky proposition. Okay, moving on. See, guys, geez, man, I get off on a rant. Here we go. I want to announce the winner. So we had um, just a, a little bit of backstory. If you're if you're new to the Western Huntsman podcast or anything like that, a little bit of backstory. Uh, we had Dirk Durham on, and Dirk is with Phelps Game Calls, and he was on for the School of September series podcast uh, that we released for the the May uh, series. And anyway. Phelps decided, and uh, and Dirk decided that they wanted to uh, provide this great stuff for a giveaway. So we've got two prizes. Prize the the first prize is the monster calling kit from Phelps Game Calls. So that comes with a Renegade bugle tube, which is the one I use. Uh, it comes with three Maverick reeds. It comes with a uh, a call pouch that is like handmade. I, Dirk and I talked about it. I th- we think it's it's either Jason Phelps' uh, mother or grandmother that actually hand makes these things, and it says the bugler on them. And it comes with a double D uh, external cow call. So it's an awesome package. Like seriously, that's all you would need going into September for for calling an elk. It's a it's a great package. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head what the dollar value is, but it's you know over a hundred bucks. Uh, it's a, it's so anyway, really super cool package. Um, and then prize number two is a, uh, this coffee mug and hat from the bugler and, uh, well, not coffee mug. It's, it's a tumbler, man. I forgot the word there. It's a tumbler. It's a black tumbler. Um, I, I've got one and I used it while I was up camping this last weekend. It keeps coffee pretty hot, pretty nice. So it, that's a, a hat and a tumbler uh, with the Bugle brand logo on there and a pretty cool giveaway. So we've got prize one and prize number two. We had quite a few entries into this. Now, some people didn't listen to the instructions and they just sent me an email saying, you know, hey, I want to be in the giveaway. Well, that didn't get you entered. I, I apologize, but it didn't. Uh, we had we had uh, almost a hundred entries coming in to this, which is uh, is probably the most we've had on any of these uh, these giveaways that we've done on the show in the past. So that's pretty cool. So the winners for prize, let's announce the second prize first. Second prize again, the bugler tumbler and the bugler hat, pretty cool package. And second prize goes to. Nate Stevens. Nate Stevens, you the man. You are the second place prize winner for the Bugler package, the giveaway of the hat and the tumbler. So what I need you to do, Nate, is uh, you already sent me an email, so you've got my email address, jim at thewesternhuntsman.com, and shoot me over an email giving me your address, and I will get this in the mail uh, ASAP. Okay, Nate Stevens. Second place winner. Again, send me your address. Okay, so this, uh, let me pull this back up. Okay. First prize. The first prize is good. I need a drum roll thing. I don't have a drum roll on my pad here for sound effects. What the hell's wrong with me? What kind of podcaster doesn't have a drum roll? Anyway, I'll fix that. I promise. Okay, first place 
prize winner for the Monster Calling Kit from Phelps Game Calls, the Grand Mac Daddy of all prizes on uh, this week and uh, probably this month. Here we go, is Dave West. Congratulations to Dave West. Buddy, you are first place winner, and um, this was not based on like quality of stories or your grammar or length or anything else. These were just, I put them all into a randomizer and drew out two names. And so Dave West, uh, just like I told Nate, man, uh, jump on there, Jim, at thewesternhuntsman.com and send me an email with your mailing address, and I will get this package shipped out to you, and uh, hopefully you guys will take a picture of it with your, uh, like a selfie, with your smiling face, holding your new grin, or gear, <laughs> grin, um, and uh, throw that thing on Facebook or Instagram or something like that. So pretty cool, guys. Congratulations. So first prize, just to recap, is Dave West. And second prize is Nate Steven. You guys um, are the winners. I appreciate you guys' entries. And by the way, I got a lot of really good entries. I tried to read all the stories. I, I got to a lot of them, but I haven't gotten to all of them yet. Uh, because I am consumed with elk hunting, I will get to them all because I think they're all pretty much elk hunting related uh, from what I've read so far. So I'm going to read all those stories, but I want to take a few of them, some of the better ones, and put them on our website within the article section uh, where where I usually post the blog articles and stuff like that. I'm just going to kind of make it its own little article and put it in there because they're, they're pretty good, and a lot of people would actually benefit from reading those stories. So uh, bear with me on that. It's going to take me a couple days to get that, uh, that downloaded in there, and I want to finish reading all the stories too. So uh, I appreciate everybody's entries, all, all your giveaways. Some of you guys are freaking funny as hell, and uh, I really like that. That was uh, uh, you guys made me laugh, so I appreciate it. So, coming up on this week uh, for this week's episode, I've got a really interesting guy named Sean Whipple, and Sean is uh, he's in Ohio, and he's working on the uh, North American Grand Slam. You know, the 30 uh, big game animals uh, that you can get in North America, and Actually, I think it's the Super Slam for 29 big game animals. I'm not totally sure on that. What uh, it's it really turned into a really good conversation. We we go we kind of take a lot of different turns. And one of the things that I wanted to address before hitting the record, well, there's a couple things. Uh, the first one being is clearly my North Idaho internet wasn't working very well, so some of it is a little bit fuzzy and hard to hear uh, audio wise, but uh, most of it is is pretty clear. So just bear with me on that, but. Uh, the second part is, is within this audience and the type of hunting that we do and the the way of life that we we pursue and live as hunters, uh, most of us are over the counter, do it yourself um, kind of hunters, right? Or we put in four special draws uh, here and there uh, for 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 good uh, you know nice units or, or great units with great odds. Uh, but for the most part, we are do-it-yourself hunters, and we are going onto public land, over-the-counter units, and we are getting into the nitty-gritty of what makes Western hunting big game uh, so fantastic to us. Now, Sean does do that, but Sean also does a lot of guided hunts, and he kind of have to because of the goal he set. And I, what I, the point with, uh, with that, what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to take here is, is Sean and I discuss like the, the infighting within the hunting community, right? 
And how I met Sean is he had po- we were friends on Facebook, and he posted something from some anti-hunter that uh, called him a murderer, and and he responded to him. He had a great response and sent it back to this guy. And I I kind of connected with him at that point and said, you know, uh, I noticed you know you shoot a lot of animals, man. Let's let's maybe get you on the podcast and and talk. And so. Uh, that's kind of how the whole thing came about, but um, he he's a different kind of hunter than most of us are in terms of uh, he he goes to great lengths to go all over the North American continent, and he also goes to Africa uh, and and pays to hunt on, on with with outfitters and guides, which a lot of us has done has have done as well. And so I'm certainly not talking negatively about that, but what I am saying is I know some of uh, the, the folks in this audience do have a negative perception of that. And, and what I'm, what Sean and I were discussing when, when it comes to like the infighting amongst hunting and, and, and the angling community and, and our, our way of life, sometimes we get a little bit more brutal with each other than we do with anti hunters or, or non hunters or, or people that, um, maybe deserve it more than other hunters. And so I kind of want this episode to be like, um, a way to highlight how, no matter what type of hunting a person does, whether they they go to, you know, a high fence area, which Sean does not do high fence hunts as far as I know, but um, or or uses an outfitter uh, or or somebody that just does over the counter public land uh, do it yourself type hunts, we're all in the same game. We all have the same common threat to our way of life, and we all have the same end end goal. We all want full freezers at the end of the day. And Sean is a really good guy. He is extremely articulate and and smart. And he, in fact, he's got a PhD. So I kind of felt I haven't wanted to email him in case I make some kind of gr- grammatical error or something. He's going to call me out. No, <laughs> which he wouldn't do. But um, he's he's a good dude to uh, to give us a new perspective on on a lot of these these big game hunts that he goes on and he goes all over the place including going to the arctic to hunt a polar bear and that is one badass story uh it's it's insane how that takes place and and how it goes down so pretty excited for you guys to hear that anyway guys uh that's coming up right now Hopefully you guys enjoy it. Let me know what you think. Um, I want to thank again Sean Whipple for for coming on this episode and sharing sharing his stories. I'm going to get him back on once he's uh, uh, he's only like four animals away from achieving his goal of the 30 an- uh, big game animals of the the North American Grand Slam. And uh, I want to get him back on and get get uh, some some more perspective from him. So thank you for coming on, Sean. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in. Please make sure you check us out on Instagram and Facebook. And if you guys like the show, I'd sure appreciate a good review. And uh, with that said, let's get into it. Here we go. guys i'm here with sean whipple phd i should say dr sean whipple and you guys are in for a treat with this one uh sean is probably one of the most experienced north american hunters that i've had on the show so far um he's gone so so far as to has to hunt polar bears in the arctic and uh is working towards the uh it's the grand slam right are you going for the super grand slam north american grand slam 
Yeah, the uh, the Grand Slam would be the the four mountain sheep, and then uh, Super Slam is all twenty nine big game animals in North America. And how many of those big a- game animals in North America do you have so far? I have twenty five currently. So only four more, huh? Yeah, four left. Awesome. Well, Sean, I appreciate you joining me on the show. I'm really like I, like I told you before we started recording. I'm pretty excited about this one. You got um, you got quite a background. <laughs> well, I'm happy to be here. Uh, I. You know, live to hunt. It's always been my passion since I was young, and I just wanted to experience everything hunting has to offer. So, I yeah, pretty much all I do, I gear my career, my life around uh, my next hunt. I like the way when we were kind of emailing back and forth, uh, you were giving me kind of an idea of your background, and and you said something along the lines of, "I decided I needed to, I, I needed more education to afford hunting." And yeah. so, <laughs> so you get, let's, let's go through your background a little bit. Where are you from originally? Um, I'm from Nebraska originally. I uh, grew up in Nebraska. Um, my dad's side of the family is uh, cattle ranchers. And then my mom's side uh, of the family, you know, more into healthcare and things like that. And I kind of grew up knowing that there was, uh, you know, two kinds of people. There's people with a lot of time and not a lot of money. And there's people with a lot of money and not a lot of time. And uh, I kind of wanted to be somewhere in the middle. And I knew if I was going to become a, a serious big game hunter, that uh, serious big game hunting <laughs> takes serious money. <laughs> so I, and I you're not of, kidding. I, I kind of uh, you know went to school as long as I, I needed to as more of a, a means to an end, knowing that uh, if I was going to fund my big game hunting, I, I had to get the education to do so. Where'd you go to school? Um, various places. I went to the University of Nebraska at Kearney for a bachelor's and master's in wildlife biology. And then I did my PhD at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln in entomology, study of insects and agriculture. And then after that, I went back to school while I was employed in the ag chem industry. I uh, went back to Park University in Missouri for a uh, a master's in business administration and international business. Jeez, man. I, yeah, so yeah, altogether that's a, that's about 15 years. Yeah, 15 years of college. <laughs> With the entomology degree uh, or the, or the focus, what are, does that, are you, are you like into fly fishing? Uh, my grandfather was a really big fly fisherman. I used to do it when I was younger, but as my passion developed for hunting, I kind of use fishing as something to pass the time until hunting season. I'm not a, I'm not a huge fisherman, <laughs> nor would I ever claim to be a good fisherman. <laughs> You'd make a good fisherman if you got that entomology, uh, yeah. entomology background for sure. So, you know what I've always been curious about, Sean, um, in, in terms of like, you know, most of us are familiar with going through the process of getting a bachelor's degree and a, you know, then going on for a master's degree. I don't have a master's degree, um, but what is the difference between those two studies in those programs versus like a PhD program? Can you give us like an overview of that? I think a lot of people are curious about that. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, in the sciences, it's different than in say, liberal arts or something. The, the liberal arts degrees, if you're going to go get a degree in business or a master's in business, it's not a research-based degree. Um, a master's in science and a, a PhD in the sciences requires 
a lot of research. It's not so much class-based. So 36 hours for a master's of coursework, you know, ends up being 12 classes, but you're spending two to three years in the field doing research on, on a topic. Uh, my master's topic was rangeland grasshoppers and sampling across the state of Nebraska to figure out the impact of grasshoppers on cattle grazing and cattle ranching. And then for a PhD, that's a three to four year research program. Again, maybe another 12 to 15 classes, but you're spending all that time researching topics. And for my PhD, it was uh, dung beetles. Um, I actually was in National Geographic and had published papers on dung beetles and the impact that dung beetles have to rangeland management and uh, ultimately cattle production and the benefit to nutrient cycling and things like that. So most of the time in the advanced sciences degrees, you're spending in the field researching topics, uh, field biology, and then analyzing your data. I have this like funny suspicion that, that you're a lot smarter than I am. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a jeans and a t-shirt kind of guy. Um, I never talk about my education unless somebody brings it up. I'm, I'd like to consider myself fairly down to earth. So, um, you know, education helps, but it's certainly not everything. There's a lot of dumb, smart people out there. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, that that's actually very true. <laughs> Let me ask you this. So, So with all of that background with uh with your educational background what do you do for a day job now um i am uh i guess i'm a research scientist uh, head of global insecticide development for a large agricultural chemical company so the insecticides fungicides herbicides that are sprayed on crops for food production and mm -hmm. farming i uh develop those chemistries globally gotcha yeah, so uh, like the agronomy kind of stuff. Yeah, for, yeah. So gotcha. once a chemistry gets developed, uh, you know, we test it in the field, make sure it works, make sure it's safe, and uh, end up, you know, writing the insecticide labels. So when a farmer turns over the bottle and needs to kill insects or uh, has disease problems, herbicide problems, we end up, uh, you know, creating those chemistries and testing those chemistries in the field to make sure that they're uh, safe and effective. Would it be fair to say that I've got like an in, you can, you can talk to me about how I can get rid of my yellow jackets on my property? <laughs> yeah, I could probably help you with that. <laughs> okay. Cause it's, it's like, uh, you know, not just a nuisance. It's a serious problem. My wife's allergic to them. So anyways, oh, that's no good. We'll, we'll talk, we'll talk about that for sure. <laughs> um, you'd mentioned you've got a fiance too. I do. I do. She tolerates me. It's so she, a wonderful, is, wonderful thing. Is she is she into hunting or just is that kind of your thing? Uh, you know, she hadn't been uh, before me. Uh, she went to the Grand Slam Club Ovis convention um, with me last year, and uh, with the registration packet, you get to enter for a door prize. And she actually won uh, a black bear hunt in Alaska. Oh, we really? Were, yeah, we we're supposed to be going here pretty soon, but uh, because of the COVID-19, we had to push that hunt to uh, next spring. So uh, her first hunt, unless we're able to get out this fall and maybe do a deer hunt or, or something like that, her first hunt will be black bear in Alaska next spring. So we'll, we'll see how she likes it. She's, uh, she's a really good shot. She probably shoots better than I do. So I nice. don't imagine don't imagine it'll be a problem, but, you know, like I tell everybody, 
hunting's uh, an emotional experience. It's not for everybody. And I fully understand that certain people, uh, you know, do not hunt or don't enjoy hunting. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. My, my wife fully supports hunting, but she does not want to go hunting and, and I'm cool with that. Uh, but that's, that's going, uh, that's jumping right into the fire with a spring bear hunt in Alaska. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely keep <laughs> us posted on that. That's, that's awesome. When are you oh, guys getting married? Oh, uh, we're going to, we're supposed to do, uh, an Alaskan cruise. It'll be right after that bear hunt when we're going to get married on, uh, married on the boat and the inside passage of Alaska, uh, next June. Gosh, man, this, this COVID-19 is just messing up a lot of plans. I'm just, uh, that, so that's probably, that's probably delayed as well, huh? We have no idea at this point. We're, we're still going to get married regardless <laughs> at, yeah. the, at this point. But uh, if that get, gets pushed back, I mean, it'll be pretty pretty heartbreaking. But what can you do? You know? Yeah, well, I'll be pulling for you, man. I'm hoping I'm hoping we're coming out of this thing. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, can you give the audience an idea of where all you've hunted and kind of what all you've hunted just as like a, a bird's eye view of that? Sure. Um, you know, in, in North America, I've, I guess I've not hunted every state, but visited every state and every Canadian province. I've done a lot of hunting in, in Northern Canada. Um, you know, the, the different species, I think that's one of the reasons that I love hunting the, the North American game is, you know, hunting one caribou species and you've got to get five for the super slam. They're all different. They're all in different terrain. They're all in different country. And you have to, you have to really experience different geographies, different cultures, different people in order to uh, accomplish them all. And that, that's one of the things I love about it the most. Um, outside of the, the U.S. and all those hunts uh, in Mexico for, you know, the desert sheep, um, I've hunted Africa uh, a couple of times. Um, what'd you hunt? What, what'd you do? What'd you do in Africa? What, what were you hunting in Africa? Africa, you know, most mostly plains game. I did uh, I did get a Cape Buffalo with bow and arrow. That was that was a rush. That was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. Um, mostly plains game. The, the kudu, gemsbok, wildebeest. Um, I wow. think I've got maybe nineteen African animals. Wow, nineteen African animals. Yeah, somewhere around there. My uh, my fiance again, very tolerant. Uh, my living room is uh, my game room, and I've got probably, I don't know, 40 game heads, life-size and, and game heads in a trophy room. So she's uh, very tolerant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> do, you have, do you have like a top three favorite type or, or uh, hunts that you've been on? Yeah, my, my favorite hunts, I, I really enjoy hunting bears. I, um, I love hunting the predators. I've just always been fascinated with bears. So, you know, the grizzly and the brown bear, the polar bear, of course, was a, a major adventure. I, I really enjoy hunting the bears. And then, um, you know, the mountain game, uh, just because of the, the physical effort behind it and the country that you have to be in in order to get those animals. I, I enjoy the sheep hunts and the, the mountain hunts. Hmm. Let's let's kind of switch gears and focus on this polar bear hunt. I think that you're probably the first person I've ever talked to that's hunted a polar bear, and I'm fascinated by it. And I want to, I, like, how did that even come to be? Well, it was, um, you know, it was funny. I was uh, just new into my career after my, my PhD, and uh, – 
it was at the time that, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump were running and, you know, the CITES committee, they meet every four years or eight years. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I was worried that they were going to, um, you know, you already can't import a bear, but I, I was worried that they were going to stop the bear, bear hunting in, in Canada. And that's where, you know, U.S. hunters can legally go. They have a very sustainable population up there. But a lot of these political decisions to close hunting aren't really based on the science. They're based on emotion. So I was worried that that was one that uh, I might not be able to do and that I should check off the list sooner rather than later. So I, you know, scrimped and saved and decided to book the polar bear bear hunt and, and worry that that would be one that... I would get to 28 and then I couldn't get 29. It would, you know, be an asterisk beside my name that I couldn't complete the super slam because I couldn't hunt a polar bear. So yeah. that's my motivation. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. That's uh, I want to, I want to circle back after we talk about the polar bear to the, um, what you had just mentioned about how some of, some of these things are, are managed through emotions versus, versus science. But let's put that on the back burner for a minute. Sure. Where did you go? And just kind of walk us through this polar bear hunt. I'll probably cut you off a few times with questions. Sure. Well, I mean, in order to get that far north, it takes a lot of travel and a lot of arrangement. Um, I think it's four flights to get that far north. Uh, weather is the limiting factor, and they build in extra days on a polar bear hunt just because they, they know that you're going to lose a couple to uh, to weather. So ended up spending, I think, three days in an airport in the Arctic before we could even get out into uh, Pond Inlet, the, the Inuit village where the hunt was based out of in the Nunavut territory in the northern Arctic. So a lot of travel to get up there. It's a long haul. And I think like most of the Arctic hunts, uh, the biggest adventure is, is getting there. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. uh, after that, then they, they hunt the traditional way. They'll take you out on a snowmobile. Uh, first day was 75 miles on on the sea ice. They're dragging you in a comatic, uh, the sled that you might have seen. They're incredibly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much torture on the body riding on that sled. And then for the, the final stock, once you cut a bear track, um, and you're, you're looking for a bear, you know, seven feet or better, uh, I guess would be, it would be a good bear. And, uh, based on the track, you follow it in the traditional way off of, uh, they have the, they pull the dog team and then they hook up the dog team and you make your final push, uh, with, uh, the dog sled to the bear. So you, you spend all this time on a sled looking for bear tracks and are you, you're able to kind of determine the size of the, the bear, obviously from the, from the tracks. Cause you'd, you'd mentioned you're looking for like a seven foot bear. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the way that they taught me and my head guide, uh, was amazing. Um, he'd been on countless, countless polar bear hunts and, you know, he was born in an igloo, just a, a wealth of knowledge and experience. And said, if you spread your, your hand out pinky to thumb and put it inside the bear track, and if you can fit your hand in there, that's about a six foot bear. So any inch that you get outside of that, that's calculates out to roughly a, an extra foot. So you're, huh. you're looking to put your hand inside a bear track and see an inch on either side. Gotcha. Wow. <laughs> that's incredible. This, uh, I was, I was reading you, you were kind of, you were in this interview with, uh, 
regarding this this polar bear hunt and, and discuss the the sleigh ride in and <laughs> and the pain and the the temperatures like what are the temperatures like up there uh there aren't any <laughs> negative it's just all negatives <laughs> yeah yeah at least at, at that time um i think it ranged from negative 20 to negative 40 i mean it, it's it's brutally cold <laughs> that's crazy there's no way around it there's no way to make it comfortable and, and your guy just he just lives up there full-time yeah yeah they're they're so incredibly tough i mean that was one thing that i took away from polar bear hunting is i'm just i'm, I'm not that tough those guys live up there in that environment and uh you know they're they're out and exposed and here i am in my my coma tick and they've got me padded up with mattresses and I'm all hunkered in with mittens and layers and I'm, I'm still cold and they're out there driving the snowmobiles and just, you know, barefaced, having no problems. And I'm, I'm like, this is, this is brutal. You know, for that me, it was, sounds it was brutal. brutal, but they are, uh, they're, they're very tough and that is, uh, very knowledgeable yeah. people. That is hardcore. Yeah. That is seriously hardcore. <laughs> that, um, so you you're out there, you find these tracks and you're doing your measurements with your hands and determine you found a bear worth going after. What happens mm -hmm. then? Um, basically they, they hook up the dogs and you, you make the final push towards that bear with the dog, with the dogs. And, um, when you get uh, close enough, they'll turn, they'll turn the dogs loose and they'll basically, the, those big male bears will get tired of spinning around and trying to defend themselves from the dog and the, the dogs and they'll basically just lay down. But, um, it was in, not within sight of, uh, the, the polar bear that I ended up taking, you, you know, they kind of, you cut out there, you cut out there a little bit. You, you were how, how close? Oh, to, uh, when, when we saw him, we were probably a mile away and they, he just, uh, you know, started coming towards us, you know, they're completely unintimidated <laughs> by, yeah. by humans and whether or not it had, that bear had even seen a human before, I don't, <clears throat> you know, it's debatable. So, uh, they're just not scared of you <laughs> at all. <Huh>. Interesting. <laughs> but the shot itself was 19 yards. 19 yards. Yep, pretty close. Wow. So the dogs wear the bear out. He kind of lays down and you close the distance and, and the, you're using a rifle, right? You're not like going after this thing with a trad bow or something. No, no. I, I wanted to, I wanted to bring my bow, but I decided uh, 375 was, uh, was a little bit safer. So with the dogs, they didn't even have to actually bay my bear up. He gave me a, a shot opportunity without, you know, involving the dogs. But huh. uh, the bear was very close. So how big, how big did he end up being? Um, you know, over there, I, I didn't have a tape with me. Um, I, I know he was, he was big. <laughs> the guy had estimated, you know, eight to nine feet. Wow. From nose to tail. That's crazy. That's freaking crazy. So at that point, when, when the bear's down, you just, uh, base, are you guys just quartering it out and taking it back to camp kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, they, they get the, the skin off and, you know, they kind of quarter it up and it, it's so cold that everything, everything freezes, you know, really rapidly. So we got the field photos that we could and, and then it became uh, kind of a, a rush to get the, the bear broken down. And, you know, I asked them if, uh, you know, we could have some to, to eat that evening and they were supportive of that. They actually really enjoyed polar bear and that, that bear I, I donated to that that village and uh, fed that village for that season. 
How how do they taste? It was really good. It's kind of it? kind of like roast beef. They they boiled it. They boiled it with uh, potatoes. They sliced steaks off of the uh, rump and then boiled it with potatoes. And it was kind of like having uh, roast beef and mashed potatoes. It was really good. I'd be curious to know how they even have a supply chain of potatoes up there. <laughs> I was kind of <laughs> curious about that too. The the food you eat on a polar bear hunt, they uh, they do have some groceries that they bring for you know some pallets that aren't so used to what they're eating. But the first night they had a frozen Arctic char and uh, muktuk, which in in this case was uh, uh, narwhal skin and blubber. <laughs> and, huh. You know, tried tried it, but you know, I wouldn't complain seeing like mashed potatoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, interesting. So when when you're holding, can you describe like the difference between you're you're kind of holding up the hide of a polar bear? How does that how does that differ from like a black bear? Um, just uh, I mean, they're such breathtakingly beautiful animals. There, there's really nothing to describe the, you know, just sheer size and the power uh, of those animals. Um, it was a really emotional experience for me because I, I love wildlife and, you know, that's an argument I, I get a lot from anti hunters is, you know, how can, how can you do that? And, you know, in order to connect with yourself and who you are and where you came from and your past and, and your fellow man, uh, yeah. I think you almost have to hunt. But it's an it's an emotional experience when when you get to actually put your hands on on an animal that has that much that much stigma in in society. So For sure, it, it For was sure. it was pretty awesome. But uh, I remember just putting my hand. Uh, I've got a picture of my hand uh, on the the paw and just how massive they are. I, I I'll never forget that. They're just huge. Do you have do you have a picture of that anywhere? I I do. Yeah. It's probably on your, on your, I'm on your Facebook here because I wanted it. You just brought up something. <laughs> um, yeah, dude, that thing is huge, man. I wouldn't want to meet that thing in a dark alley. That is for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. So, okay. I've, I've got this one and actually this is, this is what kind of where, um, you were kind of brought to my attention in terms of, uh, my interest level of getting you on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, because as, as we discussed when, before, before we started recording, uh, the, one of the reasons I started this show was to make hunters excited and united, uh, in this fight that we kind of find ourselves in with, with anti hunters. And, you know, I say fight because it is, it is a fight. It's, and we, sometimes we have a, a tall mountain to climb with this and, and there's, it's just not going to end. Anyways, I'm going off on a tangent with that. But the point is, is I want, I want hunters to listen to stories like this that go on these, these great adventures in the Arctic. You get this eight or nine foot, I don't know how many pound polar bear. And it, didn't you end up, you ended up like having to stay in the hospital for a few days after uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, that, that hunt roughs you up, <laughs> yeah. and, um, you know, I was severely dehydrated, had some fluid in my lungs and, you know, ended up getting, getting some IV fluids and, and things like that. And that hunt just, uh, just beats you up. It's, it's an, it's an adventure. The hunt itself. I mean, you get out of that sled ride to look for tracks and, uh, you know, ultimately go and, and get your bear the last couple hundred yards but it's not a physical hunt but um it's definitely an adventure 
Gosh, that's crazy. So, so getting back to kind of what I was getting at there, um, there was a post, you'd made a post on Facebook that I, that I'd come across where this guy, um, sends you like a private message that you're a murderer and a scumbag and, <laughs> and whatever. And you're, uh, I want to read your response to the audience because we're, again, we're, we're big into this anti-hunting thing and, and, and fighting back against this stuff. Uh, it's important to us. And your, your response back was, was interesting. It says, I'm sorry you feel that way towards hunters. I simply get my food myself instead of the grocery store. Never wasted an ounce of meat. And all of these dollars go into conservation of the species. I understand that hunting is an emotional experience and not for everyone. I respect your right to disagree. God bless. That, what I like about your answer is not that I think you're going to change this guy's mind and he's going to become a hunter or pro-hunting. But yeah. it wasn't like a, a he he kind of gave you a, attacked you personally and and you didn't return the favor. You, you explained your side of it and explained why you do it. You justified it through conservation, which is totally accurate. And you 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 kind of in uh, understood his point due to the fact that hunting the the hunting experience itself as a hunter is an emotional thing. Mm-hmm. But hunting in general, in the in the lens of societal norms and, and how people view it, because we're a small percentage of the population, is an emotional topic, especially when you start talking about something like a grizzly bear. Yeah. Or, or not a grizzly bear, I'm sorry, a polar bear. Well, grizzly bears are pretty, they're yeah. up there as well. But can you expand on your response to him and kind of your philosophy as to how hunters should go about when when they get messages like this guys i want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about who makes this show possible scree extreme mountain gear this is high performance hunting attire and gear scientifically tested camo patterns and it's all backed by a great company that i wouldn't recommend to you if i didn't truly believe in it the name Scree kind of has a, an origin out of the Scree rock. They changed the spelling on it, but that rock found at the bottom of rock faces and cliffs, particularly in high elevations, real rugged type kind of country. Uh, I've been using Scree for uh, all spring for, for barren turkey, and I'm really impressed with it. I had the founder on a few episodes back, and he said something that really struck me. He wanted to produce high-performance hunting gear, but at a responsible price. It's a real interesting term. And it's true. Everybody knows you can drop a small fortune on name brand hunting attire. But with Scree, you get the name brand, you get high performance hunting gear, a lifetime warranty, VIP sizing guarantee, which it doesn't cost you anything to exchange the gear if it comes in the wrong size, and very effective concealment patterns, all without breaking the bank. I really like the bundle options, especially the Elite Starter Bundle. It's like a really good deal, perfect for September and October hunts all over the American West. Uh, You should check it out. It's a great way to get started in the gear and and begin with your layering systems. Uh, Scree offers a complete layering system for all terrains and all conditions. And it's it's just a great deal, especially, again, that that Elite Starter Bundle. Oh, and if you use the promo code THEWESTERNHUNTSMAN at checkout, you'll get 15% off and free shipping. That's a big deal. Great gear great company it's a great story it's a whole package check it out the link is in the show notes guys phelps game calls 
One thing I love about the companies born out of hunting is their story. The American success story that walks us through how something started small and grew into something spectacular. Phelps Game Calls is quintessential to this. Jason Phelps started making calls as a hobby in 2009, wanting to make a more realistic sounding, right? Now, 11 years later, Phelps is one of the premier hunting call companies on the planet and for good reason. It's a great story and Phelps is just filled, it's one of those companies that is just filled with excellent, first class, salt of the earth kind of people. I've been calling elk with, uh, with Phelps for a long time. Uh, and long enough to know that it's an effective, realistic, it's a durable and easy to use call. I gave my teenager a Phelps read last summer to learn on uh, before September, you know, and like a month later, she was bugling bulls in with me. It's the same exact read I use as an advanced caller. So they're great for beginners and advanced callers as well. So I'm a huge fan of the Phelps game uh, elk calls, but I also use their predator calls. The fawn in distress call has been my go-to for bears this spring. I also called in a few turkeys with the black bat turkey read. They also have waterfowl calls, and they're coming out with some new deer calls. Hit up the website and check it out. The link's in the show notes. And if you find something you like, use promo code HUNTSMAN10 for 10% off. Whether you're just getting started or have expert-level calling skills, check them out. Phelps, get them close. You know, and that's a great question. And that's partly why I respond that way. Um, I've received countless hate mail letters and, you know, it ranges anything from, you know, I hope you die. I hope your family dies. You know, I wish the bear had gotten you all this stuff. Um, but you're never going to change those people's minds by responding with emotion and, you know, with hate, with hate responding to hate. You know, even if I laid out countless, you know, scientific studies and conservation through hunting, I'm not going to change that person's mind. The best thing that you can do is portray yourself as a human being to that other person so yeah. that they realize that while they disagree, you have the right to have an opinion and that just because you're different doesn't mean that it's necessarily bad. You can disagree with somebody and do it respectfully. And I think we as hunters really need to unite in our effort to do that. Um, screaming and yelling at somebody that you don't understand doesn't help them understand. Um, try to be thoughtful and courteous when, when you respond to anti-hunters. And uh, I've, I've gotten a lot better responses that way. And that person never responded back to me after I sent that message. I don't know whether that means, oh, he's not going to engage and he was hoping to be a keyboard warrior or he just, um, you know, he was on to the next hunter to berate. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I see a lot of dissent in the hunting community. Whereas, you know, even even as hunters, you know, we have these little mini debates within hunting. Oh, you know, I, deer hunting is the, the best ever. Or, you know, you shouldn't be able to bait deer. Or you're not hunting if you're using an inline muzzleloader versus a, a flintlock. And we're arguing with ourselves. <laughs> I and, sometimes and we, feel like, Sean, that as hunters, we fight amongst ourselves more than we fight against anti-hunting. Yep. And, and, and until we really unite and just say, we are hunters, that's what we are. We mm -hmm. are hunters. You're not a certain kind of hunter. You're either a hunter or, or you're not. And until we can come together as a community and put up a unified response, I mean, because they have massive amounts of dollars, these organizations, these anti-hunting organizations, they're persistent. They're not going, they're not going to stop. 
And if we're going to win this battle and keep our our right to uh, go out and hunt and provide for ourselves and our families and pursue our passions, we've we've got to get our ducks in a row. I, I I completely agree. the The lack of unification among hunters is is problematic for for everybody. And I've never understood the the vitriol that can come out of being like a purist in one form or another. You know, uh, somebody might strictly be a bow hunter or a traditional bow hunter or a you know a, a long distance rifle hunter. And and like you were saying, the the end game for all of us is the same. We want we want conservation, wildlife management, and full freezers. That's that's the end game for all of us. That that really doesn't change for anybody. And, and so the method is a personal choice, and and people do get really personal when when it, because like we we've said multiple times, hunting is an emotional thing. We 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 go out there and we pursue these adventures in the in the pursuit of an animal that we're going to kill, and that is emotional. And for so sure. I I think I think that you have a, a super interesting take on this in terms of like just the, the delivery and the method and, and like we can all take lessons from it because I, I get sometimes I get uh, aggressive. Like I think I, I even talked about this on, on a, a couple of episodes back uh, where I got kicked out of the PETA Facebook group because <laughs> I, I, I don't know how I even snuck my way in there a couple of years ago, but they, they finally caught on to me because I, I would sometimes post articles within their comment sections and, you know, trying to counter their argument a little bit. Um, and, and it doesn't, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't help. They're, they don't, the, the, everything an anti-hunter generally believes, and this is not like a personal attack, but it's, it's, it is pretty evident that it's very much emotional based. It is not science based. It is not fact based. And it's, there's just no evidence to back up most of their claims. Um, and and I feel like they use a lot of, um, what, what is that saying? Uh, the, the smoke and mirrors kind of tactics, like using studies from 25 years ago that are irrelevant in today's standards where it comes to how many uh, deer are wounded and, and killed five days later from a bow, you know, kind of things that, that just aren't relevant in today's like hunting, hunting world. It's, anyways. Um, no, I think with, with that, I mean, they're responding based purely, purely on emotion. And, and I think that that's problematic for, for us because a lot of times emotion goes a long way in, in a political <laughs> discussion. You know, if enough people scream loud enough, you can, you can get things done and you can get things changed. My biggest argument with the anti-hunting groups has always been if you care about conservation and you want these species to survive, which I do, even though I'm a hunter and you're taking one animal, uh, do you want the species to continue? And if so, Put your money where your mouth is. And the biggest way that you can put money back into conservation is through hunting. You're traveling to these places. You're, you're donating your, your animal if you get one, say Africa, for instance, or, you know, massive amounts of dollars into a tag. The outfitter, usually the outfitters and the guides are native. Like I had three Inuit native guides there that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I hunted with for the, for the polar bear. I donated my polar bear, not just the meat, but the hide as well. Um, I didn't, I went up there, I got the experience of photograph and I went home. And if somebody cares about polar bear conservation, I would challenge them to look where the dollars 
that go into polar bear conservation come from. And it's not from the World Wildlife Federation. It's not from PETA. It's from hunting and wildlife management. And that's the only way to really beneficially impact the, the species. And I'm a, a huge proponent of conservation through hunting. I, yeah, I am too. I agree. So scenario, you're on an airplane, COVID-19 no longer exists. So you're able to fly and, and you're sitting next to somebody that's kind of, you guys get talking and let's say you're flying up to Alaska for a, for a bear hunt or something. And this individual is kind of on the fence. They're not necessarily pro hunting and they're not necessarily anti hunting, but they're curious about it because they've never really been exposed to hunting. How do you explain your lifestyle to that person? My lifestyle <laughs> to an anti-hunter. <laughs> well, like a, I said, he's not necessarily an anti-hunter, but he's not pro-hunting, he yeah. or she. Uh, they're just kind of on the fence and they're just curious. Yeah. No, I, I generally, I try to openly engage people and just pose questions to them that make them think about why people hunt. Um, I personally don't hunt to kill. Killing is a part of it. But you hunt, you know, you kill to say that you have hunted. I mean, ultimately, going and climbing a mountain is is great. But for me, you just climbed a mountain. I'll climb a mountain if you put a sheep at the top of it. You know, that's hunting. You, you kill to say you have hunted, not the other way around. Um, so for me, educating people on first why I do it. And if they disagree with that, that's perfectly fine. I'll then pose some questions like, uh, you know, do you have problems eating eating meat? Or are you a vegan? Um, why did you initially start not eating meat if they answer that yes, indeed, they are a vegan? And, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing for me, the biggest level of hypocrisy is when somebody eats meat, but they're anti-hunting. Oh, like I know. Some, like somehow it's uh, holier to have your meat bludgeoned to death by somebody else than go out and kill it yourself. Oh, that, <laughs> that is so true. That drives me nuts. <laughs> it drives me crazy too. I actually just had, uh, my friend Bob was attacked by a grizzly bear in Montana and ha I had him on the show uh, a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it, you know, the, the interesting story with Bob was definitely the grizzly bear, uh, the attack and the events that took place and how he got out of that and him and his friend survived. And, um, but what was even more interesting was the viciousness of the attacks that came after that. Like you were saying, he was getting inbox messages uh, from people saying that they wished that the bear had gotten the better of him and killed him and, and Satan's going to whisk you away to hell. And uh, you know, all these, all these just absurd, ruthless, and totally uncalled for comments. And, and that stuff just makes my blood pressure raise in ways it shouldn't be raised. And so I, I, I kind of put an article together about that. And one of the snapshots I got off of his uh, inbox <laughs> was this lady holding up two lobsters, calling him a murderer. In her profile picture, she's holding up two lobsters at like a restaurant. Yeah. And she's got the lobster that, you know, that those bibs they put on you at the, at the seafood restaurants. Mm -hmm. And, uh, she just simply wrote, you are a murderer. Yeah. <laughs> I get, I get that one a lot. The, the hypocrisy <laughs> behind that. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I don't, uh, I would, you, you'd never catch me being a vegan, but I can understand a vegan being upset with hunting, right? I can, I can understand that side of it. But when, when you go down and you buy a T-bone at Outback Steakhouse or, or wherever, 
and and then turn around and, and call us murderers for being a hunter. The the hypocrisy there and the, the just the it's such a it's such a I don't know even how to how to explain that. But yeah, yeah. no, th- definitely. Um, yeah, I think it's always interesting just to hear people's different lifestyle choices and. We as hunters, I mean, I think we need to be accepting just because somebody's not a hunter, you know, we don't need to call them names or, you know, they're sissies or not men or something like that. But, uh, you know, just trying to educate people on why we are uh, the way we are, why we do what we do, and then be understanding if they don't agree with that. There's nothing wrong with somebody disagreeing with you. Uh, But if we want to continue... Uh, to be able to do this and to be able to pursue our passions, especially big game hunting abroad. Do I think that we will ever not be able to hunt deer? I, I don't think so. I think we'll always be able to probably hunt deer, but if you want to pursue say the super slam or travel abroad and, and hunt big game seriously, uh, we have to be very mindful of the global mindset and how other people view us as hunters. And if we come across as murderers, they're going to call us murderers. And and we just have to be really mindful of how we approach the antis. Yeah, I agree. That's a, that's a good point. The the point you made about um, coming the way we come across and and the the way that it is okay for people like we're all adults, right? it's okay to disagree with each other. And I, I feel like a lot of this, especially the last few years with like the, the political climate in America, it's, it's not like it used to be where like, you know, for example, Democrats and Republicans 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was more like this fun rivalry, like the NFL, you know, somebody likes this team, somebody likes that team you can have discussions about it and they could be civil and you, you, you could still be close, whether it's friends or family and still maintain close relationships that, with people that you politically disagree with. These days, it's like if, if you're a Trump supporter or a non-Trump supporter, you are on completely de- different sides of the fence and you, it, it's like you have to completely destroy relationships over it. I, I, I have literally had relationships destroyed and watched relationships fall apart, lifelong relationships over the the current political situation. Mm-hmm. And I, I so I think that that's added a little bit of fuel to the fire where where like what you were talking about with different different types and methods of hunting and within the hunting community ourselves. How do what is your recommendation to hunters in terms of how we treat each other, how we talk to each other, how we support each other and and kind of put on a positive but united front um, in the face of anti-hunters. Did that make sense? Yeah. Uh, I think first, you know, you should never apologize for being a hunter. I mean, this it's it's my Good life. Point. It, it, it's who I am. You don't need to apologize for being a hunter. At, at the same time, if other people are going to understand why you do it, we need to, we need to have kind of a, a script of, of how you talk to people about things like hunting. And when, when you're talking about death, uh, ultimately an animal, you know, has to die when, when you're hunting, but the, what are the benefits of, of hunting? And you can outline them and you can give statistics and facts and somebody still might, it might not change their mind, but through that conversation, they might understand that you're not the, the evil thing that the, the media or, or the anti-hunting groups make you out to be. 
for instance, uh, you know, on Facebook, I, I wasn't friends with the guy that reached out to me. He just probably came across my profile picture, saw a sheep and called me a murderer. But mm. if I if I engage with that guy and I begin to, to talk with him about it, he doesn't he doesn't see me that way anymore. He sees me as somebody who's willing to have dialogue. And as long as we're willing to have dialogue, I think uh, I think we're going to be be OK. It's when we stop talking and we start shouting that, that things go wrong. Good point. Really good point. I can see I what I like about you have a calmness about you with it. And, and I can take a lot out of that because sometimes I get a little bit too aggressive when, when I get those types of messages or I see my friends being threatened by anti hunters and, and, or, or have death wishes sent to them. Um, I, I could, I could learn a lot from your calmness because I, sometimes I don't react in the best way that way. And that doesn't do us any favors as hunters. Your approach is going to be a lot more effective. And, and I, I definitely recognize that. And, um, so, so yeah, I, I appreciate the way that you responded to that guy. And as much as I want to put him on notice, uh, it, it's just not going to be the right thing. No, it's not worth it. It's yeah. never, it's never worth it. You know, and, and I see a lot of, you know, different, different hunters out there. And I'm, again, I'm never going to apologize for being a, a hunter. It's not just what I do. It's who I am as, as a person. I'm never going to apologize for that or, or change just because somebody has a different opinion. However, you know, most hunters that are serious about it have animals in their profile pictures. You know, that's mm-hmm. me. That's who I am. I'm not going to apologize for it. But, you know, when you respond to that kind of allegation and you just start sending pictures and, and you, you post bloody things out there, you're, you're perpetuating the stereotype of, you know, the mindless hunter that's in it just uh, to go kill an animal. And I've always told myself, if I can go hunting, and I can kill an animal and I don't feel anything. I don't feel emotion. That's the day I stop hunting. Hunting yeah. should be an emotional experience. It, it should, you know, take you back to who you are primarily as a human and who we all are as, as men. The day it stops becoming that is the day I won't, I won't hunt anymore. But when that happens, people that, that react that way, the, the anti-hunters win when yeah. you do that. So that's yeah, great point. point. Awesome. No, that's a great point. Kind of walk us through what what do you have coming up? Uh, you you had the spring bear hunt that yeah. you guys were going to go on in in Alaska. Do you have do you have anything planned for this fall? I do. Um, I've got uh, stone sheep and mountain goat in British Columbia in August, God willing. <laughs> Hopefully yeah. they open things up. And then uh, a Yukon moose hunt um, in the Yukon in September. So oh, if, that uh, now that one I'm pretty jealous about. Yeah. Yeah. No, those are three of my last four. And after that, the only remaining uh, animal I have to finish the super slam would be a Rocky mountain bighorn sheep. I generally only, uh, I I love to hunt in all its facets and that's why I kind of hunt a species once and then, you know, move on to the next one. But uh, I generally don't hunt an animal twice unless I just really love it like elk or bear hunting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But uh, yeah. These hunts are probably one and done type hunts for me. <laughs> They're yeah. too expensive to do twice. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely t- uh, probably out of my budget for this year. That's for sure. Yeah, no, that's that's great. What what do you kind of what drives you to succeed in hunting? What what's kind of let's talk about your philosophy and whether it's goal setting or or steps you take to to make sure you're successful in the field. 
You know, for me, it's it's a lot of preparation. Um, you know, on on these these big hunts, you've got so much money, so much time, riding on these hunts that you have to take the preparation incredibly seriously. Um, training, especially for a mountain hunt, you can't you can't go from the couch to British Columbia and chase a stone sheep. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. not gonna, it's not going to work out well. Um, so, you know, three to four months before the hunt, I switched my diet completely keto, um, you know, no carbohydrates at all. And I'll start training, you know, three to five miles a day with weight on my back uh, to prepare for, for those hunts to put yourself in the best position to actually be successful. And generally, the limiting factor is, uh, you know, one, your physical ability and two, you know, and probably to a greater extent, uh, mental. You just can't allow allow yourself to to quit when you you know hiked ten miles that day and you're tired and then the guide wakes you up at five o'clock to go do it again the next day. It's uh, pretty demoralizing when you get into the late days of a hunt. But if you prepare for that um, and you know it's going to happen, then it's it's a lot uh, a lot easier to deal with. Um, hmm. And I think you know I've been unsuccessful on on hunts, but uh, it just motivates me even more to get it done. You know, yeah, I'm sure I'm if anybody who knows me personally, I'm crazy motivated and I'm really goal oriented. I I set the super slam goal for myself when I was probably 18 to 20 and I just drive towards it relentlessly. How old are you now, Sean? I'm 36. 36. Okay. So we're we're pretty close in age. I'm I'm 39. So that's that's pretty cool. So you, you've got like a, a three to four month workup for these hunts, and uh, that's that's you you set. Do you set like goals annually um, in terms of what what your hunting season is going to look look like, and, uh, and and start planning that way, or how, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, for the Super Slam, you, you've got to be pretty methodical about how you approach it. Um, Certain hunts, like in the Yukon, you can do combos. Um, I'm a big proponent of doing combo hunts whenever possible if you want to get the experience of hunting multiple species, just because it's going to be cheaper for you in the long run to do it in a combo. I know the trophy fee at the time seems like a lot when you didn't budget for it, but uh, having to travel back there and hunt that species a second time is, uh, is you know becomes really costly. For instance, on my doll sheep hunt, I took a doll sheep, a grizzly bear, and a mountain caribou all on the same hunt. And if I would have done those hunts, uh, you know, all separately, it would have probably, you know, doubled yeah. in price easily. So, um, you know, the hunts that I set up, I try to do combos and just chip away a species at a time based upon kind of the, the regulatory environment, uh, the populations of the species and how they're doing and then the ability to draw a tag uh, you know i don't need to tell any other hunters how difficult it can be to draw a tag in the lower 48 i think i've, I've yeah. got 14 preference points in every state that you can possibly draw a sheep tag and i've never drawn so it's just you know biding your time and patience and as you as you chip away you chip away <laughs> you know yeah do it yeah, as you definitely. can I think for me personally, I've always been really motivated by, by this. And as my financial situation has changed over the years, um, you know, when I was going through college, I devoted 80% of my income to hunting. So that income wasn't a lot, but when you set that much away and make it a priority, you can, you can accomplish quite a bit. So, 
you know, do a caribou here, a black bear there. Um, some of the species, the deer, you know, mule deer, coos deer, sick of black-tailed deer, the species that weren't so expensive, knowing that as I got more education and more financial mobility, uh, that some of the later species, the most expensive ones, um, you know, you might be able might be able to attain. But it wasn't until I got to about animal number 19 or 20 that I could actually kind of see a light at the end of the tunnel and go, hey, you know, I set these almost unattainable goals, but I, I might be able to get this one. Yeah. So, now, do you hunt locally? Not so much. I, I live in Ohio currently, and, um, you know, I've gone out deer hunting uh, a couple times, but, you know, I, I generally save all of my time for, you know, work, vacation, things like that, for the big hunts that I have planned. Uh, once I finish the super slam, I'll, I'll do a lot more locally, but, uh, yeah. pretty, pretty one direction geared right now. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, you're kind of focused, man. That's, that's, you know, what I like about you is you, you've got that goal and you focused on it and, and you've kept that, you know, that focus pretty primed in, uh, over the, over the last several years. And, and you're, you're pretty close to your goal, man. That's, and you're a high achiever. <laughs> well, I love um, it. I mean, you know, if, you, if you're anybody that's that wants to get the super slam and, and chase the super slam, it, it's one of the pinnacles of of big game hunting. And if it were easy, there would be a lot more people that, that have done it. I think maybe 160 some people ha- have done it. Maybe maybe a little more, but I don't believe it's over 200 uh, according to Grand Slam Club Ovis. So it's a it's a lofty goal, um, and you have to be really motivated. And along with that motivation is going to come sacrifice, you know, time away from your family, time away from your friends, all the money involved in going on some of these uh, big expeditions. So uh, accomplishing those goals doesn't come without sacrifice. And I certainly can't thank uh, my family or my fiance enough uh, for the support. They understand how important it is to me and, uh, you know, the drive to do it. I think has led a lot of other people that I know to be passionate about it too, and maybe more supportive of hunting because they see how important it is to me. That brings up a really good point. That's, that's a really hot topic in terms of uh, with, with you coming up on getting married and, and there's a lot of younger guys that that are listening to this that are kind of in that same boat uh, and maybe starting, starting families. How did, how did you, what kind of conversations did you have with your fiance? Uh, about your hunting uh, lifestyle and and what did you guys set expectations like what what did that conversation look like you know she is uh, by far the most supportive person in my life and that's why I decided to marry her Um, she's my number one fan and uh, understands how important it is so when it comes to the finances and things like that if I need to drop money to go on a hunt to accomplish my goal, she's the first person to say, you know, you need to do that. You need, you know, she's always really supportive. And in the past, I think we've all been there that we've lost relationships because we didn't have that, that kind of support. And uh, mm-hmm. when I was, when I was younger, I'd be the first person to say that, you know, if, if somebody doesn't support your passion, uh, it's going to be a lot more difficult as a hunter to accomplish your goals in hunting if you're married. And I still have that opinion that, you know, a family and a wife and kids, it's going to be tough to get the super slam if, if you, if you want to do that, not yeah. to take anything away from getting a family, a wife and kids. It's very rewarding. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to, you know, having my own family, 
That being said, if I had got married when I was 22, 23 years old, I would not be completing the super slam. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree with that. My, my wife would never let me do that back when we had toddlers and, you know, and I say let, it's not like we let each other do anything, but she would have not been as supportive as she is now with the time that I spent in the woods now that the kids are older. You know what I mean? Oh, for Um, sure. Yeah, and not so, even just that. I, I probably wouldn't have wanted to either if I had young kids and and a wife at, at home. Some of these hunts are are dangerous. Yeah, you know, you're yeah, out that's in, true. You're, you're out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I I got in a bad horse rollover in the Yukon, uh, broke my leg, and was miles away from anything. I mean, very easily could have been much much worse. Um, sure. So so you have situations like that, and makes you nervous. Uh, and and I love my family and. I don't like being uh, gone any longer than I have to. Generally, when I go on these hunts, while well, I love hunting and I enjoy being out there, I, I want to get it done. You know, I'm motivated to get it done so I can be back with the people I love. So when you accomplish your goal with the Super Slam, <laughs> what, what, what then? I'm going to go to Disneyland. <laughs> with the t-shirt <laughs> and all, right? <laughs> uh, no, I'm going to have a... Big, big party, big party. Um, uh, now I'm invited, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll come out to Ohio. Absolutely. All your listeners are invited too. I'm going to get, yeah. get a nice bottle of bourbon, sit around the fire and just uh, be glad. You know, it, it's interesting as I get so close to completing it, it, it's almost more like a burden than anything else. There's so much stress involved with going on these last few hunts and you know, I'll probably feel like it's a, a massive weight off my shoulders. And I, I think I'll, I'll probably actually enjoy the hunting that I do a little bit more after having the goal. You know, I'll travel to different places, hunt different things, but, uh, you know, be more more relaxed about it. Sure. Yeah, I, I bet. I, I Probably gain you, some weight, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, you know. That's going to, that's going to happen a little bit with age too, though. So I, I'm telling you, I, and I've, I've said this on other uh, episodes, but it's like, gosh, man, I, I hit like 38 or 39 and all of a sudden it's super hard for me to keep weight off. Oh, yeah. It's like this big difference. But when, uh, are do you ever get worried that like you're going to get to 28, right? In, in the super slam. And then the last animal left is going to be a really difficult uh, tag to fill in terms of like circumstantially things go wrong on the hunt and you just can't seem to get it done and have to go back. Yeah. Uh, that's always a big fear. You know, like I, like I said, when I, when I broke my leg on a dull sheep hunt, um, you know, just because you break your leg, you still got to pay for the hunt. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I had to, had to go back and, you know, ultimately I went back to the same spot because that's just the way I am. I wanted revenge <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, I got my, uh, got my sheep, but you know, when you're putting out these, these big, big money hunts, uh, you know, it, it's nerve wracking. It, it really is. If you look at some of these great hunters who have accomplished the super slam, you know, I remember watching, uh, Tom Miranda's DVD on, uh, you know, adventure bow hunter. He completed it all and got them all on film and did it all with a bow. I believe he had to go do his desert bighorn sheep four times before he was successful. Wow. And if, now if you think about that hunt, yes, you can draw a tag in the lower 48 and yes, you can do it yourself if you're lucky enough to draw that tag. Now, not many people are, it's 0.000 
however many percent chance to draw in Nevada or Arizona. But if you want to go to Mexico and do it, you've you've got to drop a considerable amount of money and uh, not not like moose hunt money. It's like three moose hunt money. <laughs> so, oh, wow. You know, um, most of those hunts are are running anywhere from 50 to $70,000 to go okay. to Disney to go to desert sheep. So of course it's nerve wracking to think that you might go home unsuccessfully and whether or not you can financially do it again. Jeez. Yeah. That's super expensive. What kind of over the, over the counter type hunts have you done? Um, over the counter hunts, uh, you know, I've hunted elk a few times, Colorado. I was fortunate to draw my Rocky mountain elk hunt in uh, in Wyoming. I think nine preference points to draw the unit that, that I, I drew there. But I'm really unlucky when it comes to the draw. Um, uh, you and <laughs> so me both. I, uh, I haven't drawn a sheep, a goat, uh, you know, moose, anything other than that one elk tag. And I put in in every state religiously every year. It's just um, uh, over the counter, I guess. I did my coos deer in Arizona. How was that? That was fun. I, it, was, it was fun, but uh, a little tough. I, I, um, again, kind of have some unlucky stories in, in hunting. I, uh, I dislocated my ankle on Kodiak Island on a Sitka blacktail hunt. And I had my coos deer hunt booked with an outfitter in Arizona for three weeks after. So I was in a boot. I could only hike about, you know, half a mile a day with, you know, like walking sticks as crutches. Jeez. So I basically just hiked up to a, a knoll to wherever I could go and waited. And I didn't shoot a very big deer, but I did, I did get a deer. At least <laughs> but, you got a, at least you, at least you got a notch a tag down there, man. I got, I got invited to go coos deer hunting. So I'm, I'm uh, into, into coos deer right now. I, I'm really thinking about going down this, uh, this winter. Were, were, were you doing rifle or bow? I did a rifle hunt. It was a rifle, rifle hunt on the coos deer. Would, yeah. you, would you recommend rifle or bow on, on the coos deer? Uh, if you're going to do a bow, it'd have to probably be a waterhole type hunt. Um, you know, sitting in a blind, waiting for them to come to water. They are so tiny and, uh, you know, they're in some rough country. So yeah. it's tough to get close. I mean, you can do it. I recommend a stand type hunt instead of, uh, instead of a rifle hunt. Um, and it's, that's an interesting topic over the counter tags. You know, I, I think, me wanting to complete the super slam when I was, when I was younger and I didn't have a whole lot of money to do it. And, and it goes back to your point on, you know, hunters disagreeing with other hunters. I think there's some hunters that believe you have to shoot the biggest of every species. You know, you have to be a textbook trophy hunter mm-hmm. in order to enjoy it or experience it. And I don't see it that way. Um, some of the animals that I've shot, my Thule elk and my Roosevelt elk were both calves. Um, could yeah. I have killed a bull on both of those hunts? Yes, I could have killed a bull on both of those hunts. But hunting a Thule elk and a Roosevelt elk cow costs about $2,000, where if you want to shoot a bull, it's going to be eighteen dollars to $25,000. So, you know, if you want the experience, uh, if you're after the experience, and that's why I started chasing the Super Slams, I wanted to experience everything that hunting had to offer. And the more I hunted, the more I realized how little I knew about hunting when you're chasing different species and different terrain. So getting the experience doesn't have to break the bank. Yeah, no, and that, you you brought up a couple of good points within that. I mean, like the the hunter disagreements. There's there's a big difference in like the way hunters feel 
about um, guided hunts versus over-the-counter hunts. And, uh, you, you know, most of my listeners, we're Western hunters. We're, we're mainly over-the-counter kind of blue-collar hunter type, type kind of guys, you know. And, and that's, uh, that's, that's most of our, that's, that's, that's our speed. And, and we, we really enjoy that. And, uh, there, there is like this, this argument, this debate constantly about the, the, the difference between guided hunts and, and over the counter hunts. And what do you say, what do you say to these guys that are super diehard over the counter and, 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 uh, you know, and, and not so much over the counter, but public land, non-guided do it yourself kind of hunts uh versus versus a guided hunt no i mean it's super rewarding i can understand why people want to do it that way and only that way i mean it's cheaper it's more adventure and it's really really gratifying when you're able to harvest an animal and you know you did it all on all on your own no guide no outfitter you know i've I've hunted black bears like that in idaho over the counter some my elk and, and deer you know, if you're going to chase the super slam and try to get species like, like caribou and moose, uh, for instance, you're going to have to go outfit um, unless you yeah. draw a iris tag in the lower 48. And a lot of the species like the, the sheep and the bears and the places where you can hunt them, they mandate that you have uh, have a guide. Um, brown bear, for instance, in Alaska or um, yeah. grizzlies, grizzlies in the Yukon, you've got to have a guide. So while I see, uh, you know, there's a lot of utility and when I can go and do it myself, believe me, if I drew a sheep tag in Wyoming, I'd be out there for a month scouting and I'd, I'd, I'd do it. Yeah, but, uh, that'd be a great hunt. Yeah, it would be a blast. I'm what? really hoping I'd draw. You, you, <laughs> but, came out, you came out to Idaho to hunt black bear, huh? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, little place called uh, Carmen, Idaho, close to Salmon. Yeah, and, oh yeah, uh, I know that area. Yep, got a got a black bear baiting tag, and one of the local guys who I had met on a, a hunting forum, you know, said, "Come on out," and he kind of pointed me in the right direction. Set up a bear bait and sat in a blind, shot a nice color phase. It was a great hunt. Good deal. Yeah, wow, that's near and dear to my heart, man. I'm in Idaho, so cool. Well, this has been a really good conversation, Sean. Enjoyed. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I I'd really like to. I think we ought to stay in touch. And I want when when you achieve your goal, which you're gonna, I, I know you're gonna, when you achieve the goal of the Super Slam, you should come back on the show and, and tell us about it. Sure, I'd love to do that. I'd love to do that. I can, uh, I can tell you, I'll probably probably cry. I'm the least manly of the hunters <laughs> you've ever met. Uh, you know. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> but, but that's uh, that's a huge yeah. goal and a huge that's a huge achievement. And I know, I know you've been working a long time and, and uh, put a lot of effort into this. And uh, I mean, just the, the polar bear hunt alone is amazing. Um, uh, just a, what, what an experience that must have been. And, and this is, you know, one of my favorite parts of doing this show is I, I get to have guys like you on and, and, and share, you're sharing these amazing adventures out, out doing, doing wild things in wild places, man. I love it. Yeah, I would encourage everybody else to do it as much as they can. I uh, I love being outdoors. I, I love hunting and um, yeah, keep doing it. Yeah, I appreciate it. No, that's that's great. I Thanks again for coming on and uh, good luck this uh, fall on the hunts that you have planned and good luck with, and, and best wishes with uh, the upcoming marriage. 
Oh, thank you very much. And uh, definitely let's stay in touch and, uh, you know, happy to come on anytime. All right. Sounds good, Sean. Take care. Yep. You as well. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Western Huntsman Podcast. Glad you joined us. If you liked that episode, please tell a friend and let me know what you thought at jimandthewesternhuntsman.com. And don't forget to check out our show sponsors. The links are in the show notes. Stay Western, and I'll see you on the mountain. Mm-hmm.